We're going to continue in Luke chapter 21, so I'd encourage you to turn there in your Bibles. Luke 21, and I'm going to read verses 20 through 33. Luke 21, verses 20 through 33. And if you would stand as we read. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains, and those who are in the midst of the city must leave, and those who are in the country must not enter the city. Because these are the days of vengeance, so that all things which are written will be fulfilled. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing, nursing babies in those days, for there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to this people, and they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled." There will be signs in heaven and moon and stars and on the earth dismay among nations. In perplexity at the roaring of the sea and waves, men fainting from fear and the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. But when these things begin to take place, straighten up. Lift up your heads, because redemption is drawing near. Then he told them a parable. Behold, the fig tree and all the trees, as soon as they put forth leaves, you see it and know for yourselves that summer is now near. So you also, when you see these things happening, recognize that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have entrusted to us your word in Scripture. We confess and believe its own self-testimony that it is your word breathed out by you inspired, inerrant, infallible, powerful to accomplish your will in us today. So Lord, as your word goes forth, would your spirit accompany it with power? Would you give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts that are softened to hear in faith, to believe and obey? And Father, I now pray that whatever proceeds from this mouth that is not of you would fall to the floor and remain unheard for the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Lord Jesus, you said and say here, heaven and earth may pass away, but your word will never pass away. So Lord, would you speak? God of glory, speak. Father in heaven, speak. Your children are listening. Have mercy in the name of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. One second. There was a time that I thought I knew what this passage meant. 
And then there was another time that I realized I didn't. And now I've arrived at what I believe that it says. And it's not about what you think it's about. It's not about what you think it's about. As a child, I grew up in a Southern Baptist church, and I I can't say I remember a, a sermon on the end times, but I was entrusted when I, I don't remember when they came out, late high school into college, I was entrusted with the Left Behind series. You guys remember this? Tim LaHaye and I don't know, Jenkins, maybe? Uh, and they give you, it's, I mean, for, a, for a, a, a high schooler, it was compelling reading. I have not come back to them in a long time. Uh, but those, that the ideas that are put forward there and the interpretation of Scripture presented there uh, has, if you will, locked down much of Southern Baptist life, churches, and also just American Christianity in general of how we understand what God is talking about in his word here and what God is going to do at the end of the age. And that is, at the very least, it's problematic because there are many Jesus-loving, God-fearing people who preach things like this. And so I'm probably going to say something today that one disagrees, if you've been in the church for a long time, disagrees with what what you think you know. Uh, And two, uh, it's going to disagree with very popular and godly preachers. So a a divergence here is not a divergence upon the articles of the gospel. To differ on how we see the end of the age and the end of time and space, the end of the world and Jesus' second coming, ought not set acrimony between brothers and sisters in the Lord. There's, there's room here, okay? So I'm going to put forth my best effort to understand this passage of Scripture that God in His providence has brought us to t- today. But I also recognize that I don't have all the answers and that you might have good reason, good faith for believing otherwise than me. But I would ask you humbly that you consider the case, okay? Can you do that? So as we established last week, this is the called the Olivet Discourse. This is in Jesus's final week on the planet um, before his second coming, which is interesting. Uh, but this is his he's come into Jerusalem. The triumphal entries happen. And now we're in the what's called Passion Week or Holy Week. He's in Jerusalem for the last time. He's in Jerusalem for the last time and he begins to teach in his Station of teaching during this passage is the Mount of Olives, so it's called the Olivet Discourse. Um, And we read, as we talked about last week, when we look up into the question that's asked to Jesus in verse 7, Teacher, when will these things happen? When will it happen that the stones of the temple will be cast asunder? When will it happen that the temple worship will cease? When, When will it happen? What will be the sign that these things take place? And so Jesus enters into, after verse 7, where we went from there through verse 19 last week, uh, that he enters into an opening up of showing 
that it is in, it's, it's yet to happen. What, what, in, if this is around 33 AD, what Jesus is talking about in the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple is ahead of them chronologically. And now us, it is behind us chronologically. He's looking ahead to the events that culminate in 70 AD when the Roman armies finally roll in, crush Jerusalem, tear down the temple, and Jerusalem and the Old Testament system is crushed and done away with under the judgment of God. And so last week we talked about in between now there are certain things that we can look at then not as indicative of the end of the age, saying, hey, there's a war in the Ukraine, therefore Jesus must be coming back. That's not how we're supposed to look at history. That wars and rumors of wars are symptomatic of this age until Christ's coming, until Christ establishes his kingdom on earth. Wars and kingdoms going to, I mean, nations and kingdoms going to war with each other is Endemic, it is, it is a part of this world. So is things like persecution for Jesus' people. And so when we come to verse 20, there's a shift in the language. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies. So he's talking about all these things that are sort of surrounding these, these and I'm going to say last days in terms of the last days of Jerusalem. There's going to be persecution. They're going to, you're going to be betrayed. You need to endure. God's going to preserve you. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, and this is a, there was a literal siege that surrounded Jerusalem. Um, Vespasian, the general of the army, had been recalled to Rome after Nero's death. And so he would eventually become emperor. Titus was left in control of the army and they besieged Jerusalem with horrific results. And if you were curious about this, go read uh, Josephus, who was a one of the earliest. He wasn't a Christian, but one of the earliest historians of that time that he was he was there around then he was there. Uh, and he talks about the wars of the Jews and, the, and the, the, the effects that the siege had in the streets and in the city of Jerusalem. Because in the streets in the city of Jerusalem, there were divisions. You had all of the, 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 the sects and the divisions that you see in the New Testament, but they're exacerbated. The Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Zealots, and they're warring with each other. And then the Romans come and they besiege the city and there's no food, there's no water. They're eating each other. They're eating their children. It's horrendous. Awful, awful and horrendous. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. So when the Roman army encamps around Jerusalem at the culmination there of the Jewish-Roman wars, this is the desolation of Jerusalem. This is the, a little while later, these are the days of vengeance. You remember, go back to the parable. Go back to the parable of the vineyard owner in chapter 20 that we talked about. Do you remember the story? There's a man who owns a vineyard. He goes off and he puts tenant farmers in charge of it. And he goes off and then he begins to send his servants back in order that he might rightfully receive some of the fruit there. But what do they do? 
They, they abuse them, they beat them up, they cast them out. And then finally, the owner of the vineyard says, I'm going to send my beloved son. Surely they'll respect him. And what do they do to the beloved son? They cast him out and they kill him. And here we have God's gracious, merciful sending of his prophetic witness to the people of, of Israel, to the Jews, saying, coming, and you can read the prophets. Read them. Read Isaiah and read Ezekiel and read Daniel and read Jeremiah and repent. Repent. You're under judgment. Repent. And God sends his prophets and he sends his prophets. And the people of Israel, the Jews, continue to reject. They continue their own way. And so finally, in the order of the redemptive history of God, he sends his only begotten son, his one and only son, he sends. And we know how that turned out. But you remember, after they, the, in the parable, after the vineyard growers or the tenant farmers, after they destroy the son, how does Jesus make the turn? Verse 15 of chapter 20. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come, verse 16, and destroy these vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. AD 70 is the destruction of those that were once entrusted with the vine of God, with the covenant promises, with the oracles of God, their continued rejection that culminates in their rejection of Jesus as Messiah. That rejection of Christ is, if you will, the final nail in the coffin. And so the days of vengeance is the destruction of the Old Testament people in the Old Testament way. To open the door that God is going to entrust this to others. These covenant promises. And this, so our passage up to verse 24, then Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So that the promises of God are extended to the, to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews. The days of vengeance... And what Jesus is doing here is that before his own death and his own resurrection and his ascension to the right hand of God, the father, that Jesus is operating as a prophet and as the prophet. And so that Jesus's prophetic ministry, which has been working throughout his earthly ministry, but as Jesus's prophetic ministry culminates here in his prediction, his prophetic foretelling, foretelling of the destruction of Jerusalem. And so now we can put Jesus's prophecies to the test. We can put them to the Deuteronomy 18 test, right? I'm going to, God's going to raise up a prophet like me, Moses says, but the test of a prophet, if he says something's going to happen and it doesn't happen, he's not a prophet, he should die. Jesus says something's going to happen and it happens. And it is of the, it's the most dramatic happenings of God so far, judgment-wise, of God's interaction with His covenant people. So those who are in Judea must flee. The reaction to this is flee. That by this point, 
by the point of the army circling Jerusalem, it's like the two angels coming to Sodom and Gomorrah. The deal is done. Judgment is coming. Lot, get your stuff and your family and get out of town. Those who are of faith at this point are not those who endure in the city. It's those who endure as they flee. Because the days of vengeance, so that all things which are written will be fulfilled. That's a sermon in and of itself that we don't have time to unpack this morning. But all the things written that God is going to finally and fully destroy Jerusalem. He's going to destroy the temple. He's going to cast it asunder. And dear ones, it's not going to be rebuilt like you think it is. Let me take a step back. Because I'm, I'm coming pretty hot and heavy right now. Um, and so I, I know, I know, I know, I'm assuming um, that I've, I've already said things that you're like, what? No, uh, it's going to get worse, okay? So just, we need, we need some seat belts in the pew so I could say, buckle up, you know? Um, but, but again, remember, remember the intro, okay? I'm doing my best to lay this before you. I'm, I've come to believe it convictionally. Um, but I want to offer it to you humbly. So don't misunderstand my preaching tone as, an, as, as a tone of arrogance. Okay? Um, so you might see these things differently. All right. Uh, so woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing. The days of vengeance are horrible days. And, and so from 20 to 24, these, this is a description of the days of siege. When the Romans' armies are surrounding Jerusalem, there's famine in the city, and it's awful. It's not only awful in the city, but, but it's those who, who try to flee, and they're caught by the Romans, and they are crucified by the hundreds outside of the city. It's horrible. And these are the days of vengeance. Now's where the fun begins. Verses 25 through 28 refer to the fall of Jerusalem and God Christ's judgment upon the city. Okay? Now, now we've gotten into something. This is where the prevailing, and I'm going to use a word, the prevailing hermeneutic Hermeneutic means this is how we interpret the Bible. But if we come to the Bible and and separate the pieces, if we treat the Bible like Abraham treated the carcasses in Genesis 15, then we will miss this. If we throw aside the Old Testament while trying to understand the New Testament, we will not be able to understand this passage. And even more dramatically, we will not be able to understand the book of Revelation. That's a big one. Revelation is absolutely sopping, soaking wet with Old Testament allusions, references, images, and symbols. And so if we believe that we can come there and understand it without understanding Old Testament prophecy, Old Testament apocalyptic writing, then we're going to miss it. Okay, this isn't a sermon about Revelation, but we'll miss it. We'll miss this too. So, okay. There will be signs. So remember, the the apostles or the disciples have asked Jesus in verse 7, what will be the sign of these things? 
These things being the destruction of the temple. How will we see that these things are happening? This is the answer to that second half of the question. There will be signs in in sun and moon and stars. And on earth, dismay among nations and perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves. When we... When we separate Old Testament and New Testament, we, we have a tendency to read things like this super literally. That we believe that there's going, something's going to happen like there's going to be a blood moon or four of them or eight of them or however many that's going to sell your next book of them. Uh, that there's this many blood moons and there's this many whatever stuff happens to the sun. I'm not trying. I'm a little, I'm a little mocking, but um, sarcastic. Sorry. Um, but it, it becomes it becomes a money money machine. Um, but if we read this super literally, then we're going to read the rest of it super literally, and then we're just going to be all confused. And they're going to be stuck looking at the newspaper headlines or the it's not newspaper anymore the digital headlines rather than looking to Christ, which is the point. All right, so uh, there will be signs and sun and moon and stars. So I want to have a here's a little bit of a defense. Of how do we, or here's a little bit of a lesson of how do we read Old Testament apocalyptic literature, judgment literature. How do we read this? How do we understand this? How do we understand this, that Jesus is writing to Jewish people using images and symbols from the Jewish Hebrew Bible? Okay. All right. So, so this is talking about the fall of Jerusalem. So journey with me. You're free to either try to flip ahead, I have it in the sermon guide if you want to come back to it and if you just want to listen, however you want to engage in this moment. But I'm going to jump through a few Old Testament scriptures to show that the same language is used in judgment oracles in the Old Testament. The same language of sun and moon and things like this is used in judgment oracles of the Old Testament when God is judging places like Edomia, which is Edom or Edom, uh, or, or judging uh, um, Egypt, etc. So, number one, Isaiah thirteen ten. Isaiah thirteen ten. This is the judgment of Babylon, and I'm just going to sort, sort of focus in on verse ten. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises, and the moon will not shed its light. That sounds, there's, there's a lot of commonality between what God is saying there about the judgment upon Babylon, which has already happened. Which already, which already happened, already happened by Jesus' time. He, same commonality of language talking about God's judgment intervention upon the greatest city up until that point the world had ever known. Arguably the world had ever known. Okay, so you see the commonality of language. I want you to see the connection. Jesus says there will be signs in the sun and moon and stars. Isaiah says the stars of heaven, their constellations will not flash forth their light and the sun will be dark when it rises and the moon will not shed its light. All three elements are present in both. You see stars of heaven, sun, moon, sun, moon, stars in Jesus's sermon or Olivet Discourse. You see the connection? That's the point I want to make. He's using the same language to talk about the destruction of Jerusalem as God was using through the prophet Isaiah to talk about the destruction of Babylon. And the destruction of Jerusalem is much more significant in God's economy and redemptive history. Okay, number two. There's, a, there's another one in uh, Isaiah 34, verses 4 and 5. 
And all the host of heaven will wear away, and the sky will be rolled up like a scroll. All their host will also wither away as a leaf withers from the vine. As one withers from the fig tree, my sword is satiated in heaven. Behold, it shall descend for judgment upon Edom and upon the people whom I have devoted to destruction. So again, heavenly, constellation-y, cosmic things are at play as God is talking about his judgment in time and space upon Edom. This has also already happened. Ezekiel 32 7 and 8. And I will extinguish you. I will cover the heavens and darken their stars. I will cover the sun with a cloud and the moon will not give its light. All the shining lights in the heavens I will darken over you and will set darkness on your land. He's talking about judgment upon Pharaoh in Egypt. And notice all the elements are there. You have sun, you have moon, you have stars, you have shining lights in the heavens. All those things are, 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 are part and parcel with God's apocalyptic prophecy, judgment, oracles. So Jesus is entering into not a literal description of his second coming, but he's entering into an apocalyptic symbolic picture of his judgment upon Jerusalem and the Jewish people. When's the next business meeting? <laughs> Motion from the floor. We need a new guy, which is fine. You can, we can play on you. I wrote down Joel 2, but I'm not going to chase that. But Joel 2 talks about blood and moon, all the stuff in the sky. And it's also quoted in Acts chapter 2. And so we see how they interpret it in Acts chapter 2 as an infallible interpreter. But I want you to chase that rabbit because I don't want you here um, all day. Um, all right, so hopefully, and I'm gonna, we're going to do that again in just a second, okay? But I want you to see that Isaiah 13, Isaiah 34, Ezekiel 32, that all of the, all, they all bear the commonality that God is judging a rebellious people, that he's holding them accountable, and the way that the Bible describes that is with symbolism of the, of the cosmic powers being shaken. There's more to be said there, but I'm not going to say it right now. But he's using symbolism of the cosmic powers being shaken. So when Jesus says there will be signs and sun and moon and stars and on the earth, dismay among nations and perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves, he is introducing an apocalyptic or an oracle, if you will, an oracle of judgment, a burden of judgment, a word of judgment. He's operating as a prophet, remember? And he continues in that prophetic stream as Christ the prophet. Jesus is our prophet. Jesus is our priest. And Jesus is our king. And here is our prophet proclaiming what's going to happen to Jerusalem. So men fainting from fear. And you might be okay so far. Hope you're, hope you're okay. We have, no, I won't make that joke. Never mind. Uh, men fainting from fear and expectation of the things which are coming upon the world For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Again, cosmic powers shaken. That this is a symbolic language of God's judgment upon real kingdoms. Real places. Real peoples. So he's using that language. And he's leveraging it again upon the greatest moment of God's judgment. That has thus far been meted out. It's upon the people of Jerusalem in AD 70. 
Now, verse 27. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. But when these things begin to take place, straighten up and lift up your heads because your redemption is near. I used to, and I'm sure you did too, you used to read that and say, this is Jesus' second coming. And there's nothing in the text that says Jesus comes to earth. Okay? And now you might feel like, well, that's a lame defense. But let's consider what, what um, the, the apostles and the writers of the Bible, inspired by the Holy Scriptures, I mean, the Holy Spirit, consider the, the, the Old Testament reference that they quote here. They quote Daniel chapter 7, verses 13, verse 13, and I'm going to read 13 and 14, okay? So Old Testament, let's chase it for a second. And consider what's happening in Daniel 7, and then consider what Jesus is talking about. Daniel 7, verse 13. I know this is complicated, but hold on. It might get less complicated. It might get more complicated. Let's see where we go. Daniel 7, verse 13. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. Pay attention here. Where is he coming in in Daniel chapter 7? One like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Where is the son of man coming in Daniel chapter 7? It is not to earth, but it is to his heavenly throne in his father's presence. The son of man is being presented before the ancient of days. So when Jesus quotes that verse in Luke chapter 21, when he quotes that verse in Luke chapter 21, this is not Jesus' return. This is Jesus' enthronement. And in fact, if you have a a King James version, I believe, it translates in an old-fashioned way, but there, there will be the Son of Man in heaven. It puts the in heaven right next to the Son of Man, appropriately, by the way. Okay, so Jesus is quoting his enthronement. And so part of his enthronement is his vengeance and vindication upon those who rejected and crucified him. A part of Jesus, right? We always talk about he's ascended and he goes to the right hand of God the Father. Yea, Jesus. But when he enters and he is enthroned as Messiah in heaven. Then one of the first orders of business is a reckoning upon Jerusalem. Because the end of that, if you will, the end of that age, dicey language, the end of the Old Testament symbols and types and shadows had come to an end. And there was a new day that Christ was ushering in. The Messiah enters into his glorious enthronement. You're not not sold. I don't feel like you're sold. So... Consider Matthew chapter 26 when Jesus is before. This is the same week. It's just Matthew's recollection or recording of it. And he's before some of the high priests. Caiaphas and Annas and all that. These these unjust 
criminal courts that Christ enters into overnight. In verse 63 of Matthew 26, I'll give you a little bit of a running start into verse 64. Um, Or 62, the high priest stood up and said to him, do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the son of God. Jesus said to him, not, not to them, not to us, to him. Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you hereafter, you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. You will see. And what he sees is the destruction of Jerusalem, or at least the, the rising up of judgment upon Jerusalem and the Jewish people. He sees it because that enthronement means the putting down of God's enemies as his enthronement continues to mean. He must reign until he puts all of his enemies under his feet. This is what Jesus is doing. He is subduing his enemies. He's either subduing it, subduing them through the proclamation of the gospel and the power of grace and converting them, or he is setting them up for those who continue to reject Jesus for a day of judgment beyond the siege of Jerusalem. There are only two responses left to us, left to us as we consider Christ the prophet's work. We look back on Jerusalem and we say, how in the world, how in the world could that happen to Zion? They had the Ark of the Covenant. They had the, 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 the Ten Commandments sealed up. They had, they had the worship. They had the sacrifices. They had the oracles. How could it happen to them? And we look at their history and we see how they rebelled. They see, we see how they loved injustice rather than the justice of God. We see how they loved to worship Baal and Asherah and Molech and Kamosh rather than worshiping Yahweh. And it's so easy to look back on them and say, Oh, I see now you awful people. Well, church, wake up. We are not better. If we are by any degree, it is only by the grace of God. To go our own way. To believe that we are the kings and the queens. That we determine our spiritual path. And we get to say what's true and right and beautiful. To say we get to to choose things that are not up to us. We get to choose if we're a man or a woman or who we marry. Love is love and all that garbage. Or saying it's my body, my choice. For an unborn Person in the womb. Dear ones, to any point, to any way that people who claim the name of Jesus are a company to that, we should not rejoice, we should fear. For that can happen to Jerusalem. Apostate Jerusalem, don't get me wrong apostate they had turned from the faith they had forsaken god but if that can happen to them this building will offer you no shelter from the wrath of god 
Your, your name on the membership roll will not give you security before the throne of God. It is Christ and Christ alone. There are two responses at this great judgment of God upon Jerusalem. You have men fainting with fear in verse 26. The knees are knocking under the judgment of God that is coming. Or, verse 28, the response of the faithful. But when these things take place, begin to take place, straighten up, lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. And this is the old division, right? There's two responses, either fear or faith. Either fear or repentance and faith. So that if we are secure in Christ by His grace through faith, if we are secure in Christ, He has secured our hearts. He has made us a new creation. He has purchased us with His blood. He has caused us to be born again. Then we are secure in the day of judgment. But it's only because of what Christ has done. And it is then, if we are secure in Christ, that we will rise as all others sink. Both in the day of judgment and in the day of difficulty. The day of difficulty is when people of faith rise. When everyone is going down, you stand up. So, there's more to be said about the Old Testament allusions, the Old Testament images. But you can see some of the references in your sermon guide. The last thing I want to look at is verses 29 through 33. And I feel like I should ask you to, you know, do the hokey, stand up and do the hokey pokey and wake up for a second. It's not that long. We're closing in. Um, Then he told them a parable about a fig tree, right? And basically it's when you see the leaves, summer's coming. When you see these things happening, when you see Jerusalem falling, You see judgment upon Jerusalem and the Jewish people. Know that the kingdom is near. So that, if you will, the death of Jerusalem and the death of the Old Testament type symbol shadows is not the death of the kingdom of God, but it's blossoming. The judgment upon Jerusalem is not the death of the kingdom of God, but it is its blossoming. It's growing. It's expanding. We see the seed of the mustard, the the mustard seed planted and rooting and outgrowing the space. And so we should know looking back, Christ's words are sure and true and trustworthy. And we can be sure looking back that the kingdom of God was near and the kingdom of God is near. And so if the kingdom of God can be near and expanding, blossoming and growing as the worst atrocity that ever met the Jewish people, rightfully so, as they sat under the days of vengeance for rejecting God's Messiah. As we look to them and say the kingdom can grow there, then by God's grace and his power, he is not yet done. And his kingdom is near and growing today. Today. And we do not take our cues from Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. We don't take our cues from CNN or AP or Fox News. We don't care, listen to me, in terms of the kingdom. 
<coughs> who invades who? Because Christ's kingdom is near. Now, we do care about those things, but understand, it does not shake our trustworthy word of Jesus that he is keeping his word. He will build his church, and the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. It's with us now and growing. He's bringing people to faith all over the world, bringing people faith to faith in war zones, in refugee camps, evacuating from bombs and missiles. And all over the globe, Jesus is building his church. His kingdom is near. And we can be courageous and stand up today. Stand up for Christ. The kingdom is near. Your redemption is nigh. Wars and rumors of wars should only encourage us. Because they remind us that our hope is not built in this world but that Christ keeps his promises. In verse 32, it's really the interpretive link, the key to this whole passage. The way that I used to read this, I used to read this as a two-tiered thing. The first bit was about the, uh, the destruction of Jerusalem, and the second bit, 25 through 28, was about the actual second coming of Jesus. But I could not get around as I prepared for this message today. I could not get around from verse 32 being where it is. If verse 32, this generation will not pass away until all all things take place. And you you can do all the the ducking and jiving you want to do with the word generation, but it means generation, like time, space, people. If that were placed, say, after verse 24, then I would have a better case of a two-tiered understanding. But because it's placed where it is, in God's sovereign, providential inspiration of his holy word, then I have to say that what's happening in the, the, in the Olivet Discourse is in our rearview mirror historically. Things I did not say. I did not say Jesus is not coming back. I feel fully, deeply, passionately According to the word of God, that Jesus is coming in body, in time, in space, and this world will catch a reckoning and his people will catch glory. I did not say that Christ is not coming back. I'm saying that this passage is not it. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all things take place. And then verse 33 Here is the vindication of Christ, our prophet. He's our prophet who pronounces the truth. He's our king who has been been enthroned as Messiah. And he is vindicated as prophet saying, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. What he says happened. And what he says that is yet to happen will happen. His promises are sure. And God's judgment upon Jerusalem, among the many things it means, one thing it ought to mean for us is that God keeps his word. And that Jesus is a trustworthy guide. So what for us? Cling to the promises of God. The Apostle Peter says it's by these that you become partakers in the divine nature. Secondly, be people of hope. The kingdom is near. The statement of our prophet, priest, and king says his kingdom, the kingdom of God, is near to us now. 
And we have every, every, every reason not to be pessimistic people, but to be optimistically looking forward ahead because the kingdom is near. Secondly, if you are outside of the kingdom of God looking in, you've never gotten right with Jesus. You've never trusted Christ. You've never been born again. The kingdom is near. Paul says to the Corinthians, today is the day of salvation. Kingdom is near. Repent and believe in Jesus. Leave off your sins and say, Christ and Christ alone has died for you, has risen for you. If you would but trust him and partake in all of his glorious grace. It's for you if you will turn to him in faith. We have reason to hope, all of you. If you're outside of the kingdom, you can be in the kingdom today. If you're in the kingdom, then you ought to know, we must know, that though the kingdom is here now, it's not yet fully here. It will come, and he will come. And then finally, we ought to get to work. This transformed how I view the Olivet Discourse. And the Olivet Discourse shows up in Luke 21, Mark 13, and Matthew 24. And I want to take you to Matthew 24. And I'm going to read the, Matthew's record of this. Verse, uh, verse 29 through 31. But immediately after the tribulation of the, those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, And the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the son of man will appear in the sky. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the son of man coming in the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Verse 31. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. What if, if this passage isn't talking about the second coming of Jesus, what if the angels there could be translated as messengers? You tracking with me? You might get really mad at me for this one. What if this is not the scene of the angels gathering up the elect? They, like, like Michael and Gabriel and all those fellas. What if these are the messengers who are entrusted with the gospel? Going forth into all the world, into the four winds, right? When the word, the the, the Bible uses four in reference to the earth, right? North, south, east, west, four corners. That the gospel of Jesus Christ must be pushed out. It must be spoken. It must be preached. It must be proclaimed. It must be lived upon in the world. Because God is still drawing his people. He's still doing the work. Of be causing people to be brought into the kingdom. I'll remind you again as I close. Of the work of God in conversion. It's not just a rebirth. It is that. But it's a new location. Colossians 1.13. That he rescues us from the domain of darkness. And he transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. But dear ones. There is no transfer if there's no gospel. They can't believe if they've never heard. That's New Testament 101. There will be no release from sin, Satan, and death until they hear the message of the gospel and put their faith in Christ. Our neighbors who are far from God, yes, they have all sorts of issues. We have issues too. 
The only thing that separates us is the grace of God working in our lives. Justifying us and growing us up in Christ. But what they need is not your heaping pounds of judgment. What they need is the message of hope. They need the real one. The true one. They need the bad news and the good news. But they need Christ's gospel. And this is how God gathers his elect from all the nations. Through the proclamation of the word of God. That's something we must be about here in Elgin, South Carolina. And we must be about it to the ends of the earth. So I know I've uh, challenged you. I have, I've challenged your thinking and your understanding. Whether or not I have convinced you. I probably haven't convinced you right now. If you were dead set in a different view of things. But I pray that this will be a rock in the shoe moment. And you won't be able to forget it. And that God would, through his word, remind us that his kingdom is near. Make us a people of hope eager and urgent in our proclamation of the gospel to all that we meet. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you great praise and thanks. We thank you for Christ, our prophet, our priest, and our king. I pray, O Lord, if there are some who are here who are not in the kingdom, they are looking from the outside in, and even now they begin to long for the things of the kingdom. I pray that you would place in them a desire for the king. That they would look to Jesus. They would look to Christ and say, he who is crucified was crucified for them. He who is raised was raised to give them new life. I pray for your children, your saints. And Lord, as they've heard hard things and they've heard a lot, I pray, O Lord, that you would come alongside them, Holy Spirit, and one, prevent the adversary's clouding effects, forgetting effects, but that, God, through this, you might create in them a greater love for Jesus, a greater hope for the days to come, and a greater urgency to be about our Father's business. So, Lord, I submit this to you, and we pray that you would accomplish your will through your word today. In Christ's name, amen.